continuing in our sermon series called Connected in Communion. Last week, we enveloped this truth that we were created for communion. We, we see in the Bible where you know, God creates all of the universe. He creates all, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. On the sixth day, he creates man and all this good stuff. And he says, wow, this is really good. This is amazing. Um, and then... Adam is left alone, and God says one thing that is not good. He says it's not good for man to be alone, and he creates Eve from Adam, pulls a rib out of Adam's side, and Eve appears, right? I don't know how God did it, but he did it in his supernatural power. And, and therefore, you see this, this beautiful sense of community. And it's not just Adam and Eve who are community. If you look at all of Scripture, you see that God himself is perfect community. That's why we say we are Trinitarian, not only in our belief, we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we are Trinitarian in our practice. That means, yes, we believe that three in one, we just sang about it this morning, but what, is that, what are the ramifications of that? What are the, what are the immediacies of that? What does that mean for us living out our lives? It means that we can't live in isolation. It means that we understand that Scripture points us to community. And then we're not lit, meant to kind of just do our own thing in our own little world, in our own little house, push the button on the, the garage, pull our car in, and then once we hit the, get the car in, we push it again so it goes down and we don't have to say hi to our neighbors, all that kind of stuff. We're not self-sufficient. And even if we have God in our lives, even if we say, no, it's just me and Jesus, we're not allowed to say that because Scripture points us to the fact that, yes, we do need God, but God in his infinite wisdom created man not to be independent in himself. We are not islands. We are not meant to be hermits somewhere living in New Zealand on a farm overlooking all the, the hobbit hills and the sheep and just enjoying the grass. That's my hedonistic view. We are meant to live in communion community together. But it's not just the fact that God says, okay, I've created you for community. It's the fact that he says there's a way to live in community, and that's through the lenses of communion. Really, another way of saying that is a gospel-centered community. It's really saying, how does the truth that God died on the cross for our sins, that the body of Jesus was bruised and broken, that the the blood of Jesus was spilt for us on our behalf and how that is not just for us in our own little world, that's for our relationships and how we treat each other. You know, it's easier for me to feel closer to God when I'm like at the ocean, right? It's just, there's nobody around. It's just easier. Nobody around to mess it up. Nobody around to like, you know, my, mess up my peace, my truth. This world says my, my zone of where I'm connecting with God or where I'm in the mountains. And I, you know, we went on vacation to Tahoe a couple years ago. First time we went up to Tahoe as a family. And I love to go hiking. My kids begrudgingly go with me because they're like, okay, God, you know, or dad, like I got to go find God out in nature. The two are synonymous, by the way, dad, God. Um, and so, you know, I find myself walking near this, like, it, it seems like, what, I don't know where Winnie the Pooh lives, but uh, it was like 100-acre wood. It was like grass, perfect green grass growing over these small little knolls in the hills. And, and this, if you would just sit, you'd listen. You, all you hear was, was chirping birds and little squirrels and, you know, and, the, and the stream going through. And you're walking, and it's not too high. It's not too low. It's just perfect. And my soul is getting filled, right? Why? Because there's not another human around to mess it up. 
And the reality is in the church, God has called us to community, and it's through communion, but we have to hold this thing that keeps it all together. It's the oil in the engine, and that is forgiveness. See, we can't, we can't say, okay, God, I agree. You've called me to live in community. I, yes, I will. I, I see that in scripture and I'll obey to it and I'll do the best I can because the problem is if we just try to do the best we can, that ends up failing us all the time because people are imperfect, right? And then we're like, well, what are we supposed to do? We have this commandment. We see this truth in scripture, but people are always messing it up. How do we continue with this story? How do we continue with this truth of living in community through communion? And that is this big word, forgiveness. We have to understand forgiveness. This will often play out in, in, in your relationships, with, especially with me and Marianne, right? So uh, usually it's the case where I will do something stupid and Marianne will have to forgive me. But every once in a while, this is pretty rare, this is like one out of 20, where Marianne will do something that hurts my feelings and then, you know, um, I'll have to, she has to ask for forgiveness from me. And, and very often, she's quick to ask for forgiveness. But me, in my pride, and my arrogance, I'm, no, 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 you're not going to get off that easy, right? How, how dare you have the audacity to come up to me and say, I'm sorry, right? Don't we do that in our relationships? Somebody hurts us, somebody offends us, and we want them to, like, we want to stew, right? And we want to let them know how much they've hurt our feelings and how much they've offended us, especially in our close relationships. And how dare they have the audacity to come up and actually ask for forgiveness. Oh no, you're not getting, it's going to require at least like 20 minutes of me pouting for you to see that I'm really upset. It's going to require, you know, me like a couple doors for you to really get it. It's, it's going to require me to give you some scowls or some, you know, whatever it is. And what we tend to do with forgiveness is withhold it from each other. We tend to play it against each other. See, the beauty of Scripture doesn't give us those options. And the beauty of communion helps us rectify this whole prideful, arrogant thing that we want to do and hold forgiveness away from each other. We hold forgiveness like this, this power over each other. So, friends, family, Southlanders, I want to say this to you this morning. We must keep communion as, not just at, but as the center of our relationships. If you were to be able to, if I had some glasses up here and, and I and I were to take the Ray-Ban, scratch that off, or I would take the, whatever, the Mark Jacobs off, and, and I would write on the, on the, the side of the, the, the lenses here, communion. And I would have put these on. Through these lenses is how I need to view every single relationship that I have, especially in the church. I need to put on the lenses of communion when I'm dealing with the relationships I have with people in the church people outside of the church, with myself, with God. This is why we do communion every Sunday. Somebody asked me a couple, couple months ago, I was like, why do we do every, communion every Sunday? I, I grew up in a church where we just, you know, it was, it was communion Sunday, right? We did it like once a month or once every three months. The reason why we do, we go to the Lord's table every Sunday is to remind us of the truth of the gospel 
to say, Lord, I come back, I come back. What I'm doing is through the week, through this five minutes, past five minutes, whatever has taken place, my, my view of relationships, my view of my relationship with you and my view of relationships with other people has started to go a little off. It started to go off cue, off skew. And what I need to do is go back to the communion table, remind myself, we remind each other of why we're doing what we're doing, why we're in this church. is through the lenses of communion. The beautiful thing is, Jesus didn't just die so that you could be reconciled to the Father. Jesus died also so you could be reconciled back to one another. And sometimes we as Christians want to hold on to the truth that Jesus died on the cross for our sins only. The hard truth is that Jesus not only died for our sins, but he died for the sins that we commit against one another. And communion, if we look through the lens of that, is the bridge it could be, you could hope in good intentions, good works, nice smiles, chocolates during the holidays. That stuff only lasts for a moment. The real lasting oil in the engine that doesn't cost, what are they, I, I, I'm about to get, never mind. Don't go there. Rewind. The real oil in the engine that causes the metal parts not to break down and rub against each other is communion in relationships. How can we even try to be a church without looking through the lenses of the gospel, without looking through the beauty of what communion does for us, especially in the area of forgiveness? Let's, let's look at some scripture this morning. This is some beautiful illustrations of how the disciples are taught by Jesus. Jesus always talks about relationships, and this is what happens here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 through 22. This is the NIV version. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, you could just, before we, you could just know Peter's disposition here. He's coming with this kind of like, I think I got it figured out. And I'm going to go ask Jesus. You remember, like, if you're a parent and, you ask, and your kid comes to you and they figured out something of their homework or some truth and they want to be like, Dad, I want to just ask you a question. Is it true about this? And they already know the answer, right? And they're so proud that they figured it out. And Peter's kind of doing the same thing. He does this with Jesus, says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times, right? He's thinking he's all, he's got it figured out. Because for a Jewish Hebrew thinker living in this Jewish culture, forgiving someone up to seven times would be like, are you crazy? You don't forgive somebody seven times. You for, maybe forgive them once. And then if they Screw up, you, you, you have nothing to do with them. And Jesus says this, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Right? Emoji with the nuclear bomb coming out of the head. What? Seven, 77? So Jesus is not saying, Judas was probably going, yeah, exactly, 77, right? But that's not what's taking place here. Jesus is saying there's no limit there's no, you can't outgive forgiveness. You can't outgive the love of God. You can't outlive or outgive or outforgive the power of communion. And what we want to do as Christians sometimes is we're going to go, man, I've had it with so and so. 
I'm done. Right? They've, they've crossed me the wrong way one too many times. Shame on, you know, fool me once, shame on me. No, fool me once, shame on you. <laughs> fool me twice, shame on me. That's it. And Jesus and said, so, well, okay, maybe one more time. And Jesus is like, 77 times. By the way, this is a really helpful pattern to live your life by. See, our culture says, in order to forgive, what we do is when somebody hurts us, what we do is we go, hey, Curtis, let me just tell you what's up, man. Um, so Isaiah, just want to know, Isaiah didn't look at me right the other day. And uh, this is not the first time he didn't look at me right. This is actually the third time he didn't look at me right. I, I want to get together and we need to pray for Isaiah. Um, because I think there's something going on in Isaiah's life, and I'm really hurt, and I want to just let you know about it. And so, Curtis, um, if you can maybe just tell Maria, too, because whenever two or more are gathered, then, then there he is in, in, in our name, and so there's got to be unity in this kind of thing. See, that's the way of the world, and it finds its way into the church. Bunch of crap. And Jesus doesn't say that. The pattern is not, oh, let me tell everybody so that I can build up my little, let's go boys, let's roll, kind of posse, and then all seven of us are going to confront you and be like, Isaiah, what's up? <laughs> and Isaiah's like, what? <laughs> if you read the previous context here, Jesus says, if anybody offends you, what do you do? You go to them first only ever nobody in the world should be involved. Come on, you can clap about it. Mary is such a good testament. Like somebody will hurt or she, she knows a secret. I'm like, babe, come on, just tell me I'm the pastor of the church. You could tell me this kind of stuff. She's like, no, you don't need to know. It's not about you. Yeah. Jesus continues, oh man, we're running out of time. Jesus continues this, Luke 17, 3 through 5, it says, so watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. Yeah, that's okay. We speak truth in love to one another. It's hard. Now, if, if you, some of you are sitting here, oh yeah, bring it. Yeah, I like confrontation. If that's in your heart, man, check yourself. But Jesus does say, Go to your brother or sister, rebuke them. Let them know, hey, this was wrong. Hey, that, that hurt my feelings. Or when you did this, when, when you spoke harshly uh, to your wife in front of this group of people, bro, that's not serving you. That's not serving your, your family. Man, watch out, okay? And if they repent, forgive them. Don't be like, oh, you're not getting off that easy. Forgive them. Even if they sin against you, Here's it, here it is again, seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent. What does Jesus say here? You must forgive them. What? That doesn't seem right. I love the apostles' response. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> See, all the time, we're talking about faith in church. You got to have more faith. Hallelujah. 
Mm-mm, get your faith. Come on. Oh, I felt the faith. I don't know. You got to have faith. You got Jesus, when he's talking about the context of faith, what is he talking about? He's talking about forgiveness. So often we think about faith as to do supernatural power. I'm going to walk on water in the name of Jesus. I'm going to get this person saved in the name of Jesus. I'm going to declare this over my finances in the name of Jesus. I'm going to make this car work in the name of Jesus. I'm going to do all this stuff in the name of Jesus because I got faith. No, faith is applying forgiveness to your relationships. What a concept. Jesus doesn't say, hey, have faith to do all these amazing, wonderful things. You know what? It might be that your strongest exercise of faith will be forgiveness. That might be, for all of your Christian life, until you go home to be in glory, the greatest thing that you may ever do as a Christian is to forgive. Jesus doesn't stop there. He says in Mark eleven twenty two through 25, have faith in God. Jesus answered, and in all of this context, this is a scripture we read all the time when we don't read the context. All of this context that Jesus is talking about is through relationships and forgiveness. He says, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. The context here Jesus is talking about is forgiveness in relationships. And we want to speak to this mountain of my circumstances aren't fitting my life. And so I want to speak to it in the name of Jesus, fit my life the way I want it. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I've asked and I've declared a lot of things in the name of Jesus, and sometimes they don't happen. And you know, that can't be what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, oh, because you say anything in my name, it's going to happen. Ask for this house in the name of Jesus, poof, like a genie. Ask for this relation, poof, what do you want, poof, what do you want, poof, what do you want, right? He continues in verse 25, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in what? In heaven may forgive you your sins. I don't like the idea of conditional prayer, conditional forgiveness, but it would seem by what Jesus is saying, if we don't forgive one another, then Jesus tends to hold those things against us. Jesus, I'm praying for all this blessing in my life, and Jesus is saying, yeah, I, I, I understand that but you have not forgiven your wife, your brother, your sister, your neighbor, that person at the DMV, right? Maybe the DMV is the only one that's okay. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. You can't receive the benefits of communion and not extend the benefits communion to others. We cannot personally, as Christians, say, Jesus, thank you for forgiving my sins, and then turn around and having your sins forgiven and not be able to apply the beauty and the truth of communion to others. The problem is that we compare ourselves, right? Don't we do this? What we say is, well, I'm not as bad as Bernie, right? (laughs) I'm not as bad as Anthony. I'm not as bad as my neighbor. 
who rents out their houses in Airbnb, I'm going to report them to the HOA. I'm not going to forgive them. I'm not that bad. So therefore, because my sin is not as great as their sin, I don't have to give forgiveness for their sins. Scripture doesn't let us do that. You know, our whole faith is based on forgiveness. The reason if you have put your hope and faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the only reason that you're able to say that with confidence this morning is because you've been forgiven of your sins that you shouldn't have been forgiven of. One little lie, one little look at pornography, one little steal, one little cheat, one little whatever it is, excludes you technically from the grace of God. God only ever only accepts perfection. Is anyone here perfect? No. But through the grace of God, we've received the perfection of Christ. How dare we think that we somehow earned the right to be able to partake in communion. And therefore, because we earned it, we can withhold it from others. We live in a culture, too, of offense, right? Offense is like the trump card. I'm offended, I'm offended, I'm offended, I'm offended. And everyone's like, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Well, you didn't do this. You didn't say this, or you, you said this, or you did this, and I'm offended, I'm offended. As if somehow offense is a power. Offense isn't a power. Offense is a weakness. When you are constantly living in a place of offense, and I can, can, you know how you know if you're offended? When you say things like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. Well, I've never. You know, like the old British lady. Oh, I've never, right? That's an old British lady's sound. Why do we say things like that? Because we're offended. Preposterous. <laughs> and if somehow we live in a culture that thinks if you're offended, let everybody know about it. Get Yelp on your freaking app. That's why I hate Yelp. Everybody's got a stupid opinion. You might have had one hair in your pizza. <laughs> One time. That doesn't mean the restaurant's terrible. Well, pre, pre, Proverbs, Proverbs 19.11 says this, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook offense. Wow, if that is not in contrast to today's culture, I don't know what is. And the worst thing is that when you, become, when you hold on forgiveness, when you're easily offended, that turns into bitterness. You know what? I was, we, we got these really fancy bar top. We're not going to drink beer back there, but little round bar tops this week, and I was putting them together, and I noticed that every, I had a, a socket wrench, and I noticed that every time that I turned the wrench, I would grit my teeth really hard. The tighter, like the tighter and the harder it was, I would, I'd push down on my teeth. And I was thinking, and I had an epiphany. I, I was like, I bet you a lot of mechanics 
construction workers go to the dentist all the time. Maybe I'm the only person that does that. Do you see? Just a little insight into my world. These little thoughts that go around. It's like amazing this happens. Anyways, so as I'm tightening this thing, I just thought to myself, I felt like God said, hey, that's, that's a good illustration. I was like, yeah, you're right, God. That is a good illustration. But I mean, think about it. When bitterness is in what bitterness is, is you want to tighten down on this person because they've done something to you. You want to keep, hold them accountable for the wrong that they've done. And as you tighten, your teeth are gnashing. You just can't even say a word without talking like this. You sound like Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. And you just tighten and tighten it. And all the time while you are putting all this effort, all this strength, all you're doing is gnashing your teeth. All you're doing is causing yourself to feel the anguish. That's what bitterness is. Bitterness hurts you. you you've heard people say bitterness or unforgiveness is like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. And so true. Bitterness affects you. It'll affect not only you, it sometimes can affect your health. It'll affect not only your health, but it'll affect your relationships. It'll affect the way you think. See, bitterness doesn't just hurt you, bitterness hurts those around you. It's like going to Benihana's. I love the food at Benihana's. Every time we walk out of Benihana's though, I smell like teppanyaki, right? I smell like fried rice. Why? Because all that, all that smoke, all that flavor, all the soy sauce, oh, God bless soy sauce, all, all that stuff is like getting into my food and I walk out and somebody goes, you've been at Benihana's. And bitterness is the same way. You can't be like, I'm eating at the buffet of bitterness, getting all that smoke, all that flavor, all that crunchiness, all that angst, and I'm putting it all over me and I'm expecting other people not to notice around me. What's your problem? Nothing's my problem. Okay. Go work at the DMV then, you know? <laughs> you know when people are bitter. Everything they say is through the lenses of being hurt. Well, if this person wouldn't have done this, and I wouldn't have to get mad about this, and then blah, 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 I can't believe, can you believe this? And can you, I can't believe you still even go to that church. All this kind of stuff. Bitterness. Ephesians, I'm going to read a chunky portion of Scripture, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Ephesians 4, I'm going to read the whole portion here, 17 through 32. This is the NIV. It says this. Paul is talking to this church about relationships. He says, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live lies as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. See, when we see this through the lenses of relationships, when we don't forgive, it's this understanding of living like a Gentile, someone who's not in the body of Christ. Hardening of hearts, verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. That's really what giving yourself over to bitterness is. So as to indulge in every kind of impurity, they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life 
you learned, Southlands. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, that's the way you used to live, right? To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. I want to hold on to that unforgiveness. I want to hold on to the bitterness. In verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What is it to be like God in righteousness and holiness? It's to put off our unforgiveness, let go of our bitterness, and hold on to forgiveness and acceptance. Go back to the table of communion. Verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body, there's no enemy in this room. Not one of you is an enemy. You know where the enemy is? The enemy is out there. And I'm not speaking about people outside the church. The enemy is Satan and the works of his kingdom and the demon, demons trying to rob people of their joy and rob their salvation and pull them away from being disciples of Christ. That's the enemy. There's no enemy in, this, in these doors. No matter how many times we hurt each other, we are not enemies. Not even frenemies. But I'm thumb. Verse 26 In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Doing, so don't be in your mom's basement playing video games, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And here it is in verse 29. It culminates. He says this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. I'm guilty of that. I know that when people have hurt my feelings, I want to talk bad about them. I want to go over to Curtis. Can you believe this, bro? But only what is helpful for, for building others up according to who? Their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. Man, he's just speaking right at us this morning, right? When we want to gossip, how does that benefit the person we're gossiping to? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness. Rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Doing what? Forgiving each other. And here's the communion. Just as Christ forgave you. For those of us here this morning, which is probably much all of us, who have been hurt by somebody in the church, hurt by me, hurt by leadership, wherever you are this morning, if we don't take about what we're about to do right now and go to these tables and don't apply it to each other, what we're going to be is a people who gather on a Sunday morning. And when we get in our community groups, we're kind of like, mm, I don't know about that. Don't share life together with each other. I don't know about that. Because what we haven't done is 
proactively gotten rid of bitterness. And what we don't do is forgive each other like Christ forgave us. The beauty about communion and the beauty about the gospel is that, yes, you are forgiven, but the power of communion, the truth of communion, the power of the gospel not only forgives you, but it forgives the things that have been done to you. I want to say to you, friends, there is no sin against you. No no sin. And I don't say this glibly. I don't say this oh, you know, the gospel is the answer for every situation, just lightly, because it, it costs. I'm not saying it doesn't cost. But what I want to emphatically beat into my brain and your brain this morning so that it goes from here and it goes into your heart and then it goes to, into your actions is that no sin, no matter how dark, no matter how evil, no matter how disgusting, no matter how intentionally it was pre-set up to hurt you, will ever outpower the power of the cross. Nothing. Now that is an applaud worth, worth applauding, but it hurts to live it out. I understand that. Because when somebody does something to, if we've been sexually taken advantage of, if we've been swindled out of money, if we've been slandered, when we look at the cross and we look at the temptation to want to become bitter forgiveness, sometimes forgiveness and bitterness often look juicier. And we have to go back to what we did last week in Genesis where the enemy says, did God really say? Did God really say that the cross will overpower everything that's been done to you? Hmm. This actually will give you some revenge over here. God's not going to promise revenge. I get it. We don't forgive because we think people don't deserve it, and sometimes they don't. But the beauty and the truth, actually, is it's not our place to judge. See, when you put your hope and your faith in Christ, you can let go of the things that have been done to you, and you can say, God, you're all I need now. I don't need the approval. I don't need this. I don't need this to be worked out. I can go to you first and trust that you and your goodness will either bring healing in my life or sort out this relationship. I can trust you with that, God. I get it. Let's choose this one or that one, and it's hard to choose this one. But friends, let go of all bitterness, malice, slander. Speak well. I wrote some questions down in here. What would this church look like if we all just forgave each other all of the time? Every single time. That's dangerous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's dangerously good. It's awesome. What would this church look like if we all thought the best of each other? Isaiah didn't look at me right. That's okay. My default understanding of Isaiah is that he's probably just doing what he's doing. My default is to think well of him. He didn't mean to hurt me with his, I hate you speak, you know, I don't know, he didn't say that. He didn't mean to hurt me. 
And if he did, I'd come up and say, hey, bro, hurt my feelings. 99 out of 100 times he's going to go, I didn't even know. I'm sorry. That one time he might be like, yeah, you're a jerk. You hurt my feelings. Oh, I didn't even know I hurt your feelings. We were hurting any feelings. We didn't, did we just become best friends? You know, that kind of a thing. What would this church look like if we never listened to gossip about somebody else in this church? What if somebody, when somebody got their feelings hurt and they want to come to you, what if you went, no, 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 hold on. Hold on. Have you gone to the person? What would this church look like if we applied communion to our community? Probably be different. I think we do a pretty good job of this, but I think we have some room to grow in this area. Here's the thing, by the way, about 2,000 years ago, the one who should have been offended, the one who should have said, "Uh uh-uh, not putting myself out there. See, every time I do, they either make fun of me or they speak really ill against me. They hate me so much, they want to kill me. See, the one Jesus who should have been offended by us took our place on the cross. And by doing so, he reconciled us back to our broken relationship with God. And again, friends, it's not just so you and I can enjoy relationship with God. It's so that we can live in perfect, beautiful, gospel-centered, communion-centered community together. Will you stand with me this morning?